ora. This is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Jack Tame. Jack's a TV and radio journalist and the host of Q&A. Kia ora, Jack. Kia ora. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you um, taking the time. One, one thing that's kind of interesting, you know, COVID has... Um, it's asked us to sort of rethink about evidence and how we um, get access to information. What, what are some of the, the things maybe from, from the media's perspective or from, from journalists' perspective around trying to improve the way that they communicate evidence or, or really be really clear as, as opposed to trying to, I guess, um, create drama or have some of that personality that, that often is kind of... Uh, overpowering in some of this world that we live in? Um, so first of all, I think, I think it differs in different countries, right? So the media, the media fulfills multiple roles and the news media fulfills multiple roles. But I think that um, during COVID-19, like the, the media in New Zealand, for example, has done a very good job, I would say, um, you know, with, with a few exceptions from time to time, but a very good job at responsibly communicating important public health messages. And part of the reason that the media has been able to do that is that fortunately in New Zealand, I think we still have um, a really high level of trust in our government, our leadership and, and, and our public institutions. And it's not so easy in countries with more corruption or where people are perhaps a little bit more skeptical about um, the interests at play when it comes to when it comes to big you know institutions to actually get really solid information so I think um, you know a few things have been really um, I think have been really obvious in, in New Zealand's relative success in COVID-19 um, and, and one of those things is just the incredible value of clear communication and I mean, I think I think the government can take a you know a huge deal of credit for that because um, the communication almost from the word go has been world leading. And it sounds really basic, but but if you even just strip it back to the alert level system, for example, alert level one, two, three, four, it gives everyone watching those daily health announcements a common language. And you don't have to be an epidemiologist, you don't have to be a vaccinologist or a public health expert or anything like that to understand where you sit in that continuum. I think that, for example, has um, just been really effective in, in kind of getting the vast majority of the population on the same page. And of course, the media is able to use that language in its critiques and its analysis and its... Um, it's it's conversations about where our COVID response is going, and I think that um you know from my perspective that's one of the things that has set New Zealand apart. It's it's actually like the the alert level system, the the language around bubbles again, like what what are somewhat complex scientific ideas, right? We're talking about rates rates of infection and rates of transmission and all that sort of thing, and you know are you know can COVID particles be transmitted via airborne transmission, all that sort of thing. But you can reduce it down into a really, really simple concept, a bubble, right? Everyone understands the bubble. And 
for me, working in the media, it's been interesting to see how quickly the media has adopted that language and use that language, not to be sick of, like sycophantic when it comes to always pushing the government's message, but to be able to, to be able to, to, to build a bridge between the general public consuming public health information and both the government officials and the public health officials who are giving us those daily updates. That, that general kind of understanding has, yeah, as you say, worked quite well in New Zealand and you know, questions about, you know, flattening the curve. I mean, even, you know, recently, we're now talking about genomic sequencing, which is something that most people would immediately switch off to. But now, you know, a lot of people are learning about genomic sequencing, which is amazing. But that language part, I feel like, while everyone's gotten on, on board with this sort of immediate um, and urgent challenge related to COVID, we haven't seen that language completely picked up when it comes to other issues that we've been trying to push for quite some time. And I think what the, the hope was after, or, or sort of since we've had COVID, was that we would now see the shift in all science communication and in all of these other challenges, but we haven't seen that so much. So I'm wondering, what do you think the, the challenge is to translate how we've communicated and what we've learned from COVID into some of these other really important scientific challenges like climate change or fresh water, for example? Well, I think for a start, um, like communication is vital, but it only gets you so far. So, I mean, when I think of an issue such as climate change, um, I'm not the most optimistic person in the world because I think that um, one of the great flaws of our species is how incredibly short-term minded we are like i really think that like as a, as a collective species sometimes i really question our ability to think about our collective existence beyond like five or ten years max and if you think about it like think about all the different ways that um that our lives and our society is impacted by short-term incentives at the moment so i mean in new zealand for example we have a three-year parliamentary term now that means that basically you promise the world to get in you get in the first year you spend squabbling around the second year you spend trying to do the stuff that you promised the third year you start promising again having not finished the first and second years like personally i i don't i'm not convinced that that's necessarily the best way of governing and actually you know you, you I think a lot of a lot of countries um, suffer from not having parliamentary terms that go for long enough. Think about public exchanges. Think about the stock market, right? So, so we want to encourage the right types of investment in our society. We want to encourage the types of investment that are going to make for a better planet in a century or in, or in five centuries or for our great 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 grandkids, whatever. But then. The nature of public exchanges is that shareholders want dividends immediately. Shareholders want returns immediately. That incentivizes investing in a lot of the wrong things, as opposed to investing in things that are going to help to, to build that world. So personally, I, I, I sometimes wonder if, um, if we will not see like really substantial 
meaningful action, global action on climate change, like really substantial action, until the short-term incentives for that action um, align with the you know with whoever's in power. So at the moment, for example, I don't think I don't know that the short-term incentives for the most powerful companies and governments and leaders in the world are necessarily aligned with what we need to do for climate change. So I, I personally think that that's the that is the the riddle we have to crack. And to your point, like communication absolutely plays a role in that. So I think that um yeah it's 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 quite interesting to look at things on a global scale, right? Because um you know like places such as the US, expertise has been really undermined over the last few years. And it's particularly under the under the Trump presidency, right? Like I mean, it's amazing to me that, um, you know, even to, to consider the pandemic response, um, you know, like in, in February, Trump was, despite all the warnings from the public health people, he was just blowing it all off saying, yeah, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Well, while he was doing that, some of the biggest sovereign fund managers in the world, so managers of, of um, you know, of, of massive, massive, vast share portfolios, they were already moving their money out of um, airlines, out of oil, and putting their money into things like cigarettes and alcohol because they could <laughs> they could see what the short term incentive was for them, right? They could see what was coming, um, and I think I think yeah, I think I think one of the challenges it's it's curious to me that at the moment where our short term incentive in, in globally is to get on top of this pandemic as quickly as possible all of a sudden we value expertise so in new zealand you know we're going you know like it's fantastic you know aisha Verrill, dr susie wiles um yeah we've, we've got dr. Some michael Baker, all these people they're all celebrities every all day. Of yeah every yeah, day we've yeah. got them in the news which is exactly which is superb but um but that's because everyone wants to be out of lockdown as quickly as possible but then if you just extend that time frame a little bit and you go, okay, well, why don't we listen to very similar experts, literally two offices down from Mike Baker or from Aisha or from, or from Susie, you know, like in the same corridor, why don't we listen to, to the other expert when they talk about these other concerns? And because it's not an, I just think because it's not an, and people don't perceive it as being an immediate risk, they're less inclined to be motivated to change. And I think that is the great riddle for, for scientists and communicators and, and people who care about what the planet will be like in the future. I, I think if, what would happen if it was just put in the media landscape every day? So instead of asking the public to put it there, what if it just got put there? So for example, we hear these, we hear these, uh, um, news stories about an extreme weather event, be that flooding in Northland or a bushfire, you know, there's, now there's wildfires in California because um, it's summer again, which of course just adds to another blow of 2020. But those, sometimes those stories, they'll talk about the extreme weather event, but then that last part of that story could also talk about, say, we're going to see an increase uh, in intensity or an increased frequency of these types of events due to climate change. And it's just a, a couple of lines at the end of that story that often we haven't been told. Do you think that that is partly just because it's not directly associated with that story? Or do you think that that's because the journalists haven't got that front of mind or they don't want to try and 
um, confuse or scare people too much, even though um, I don't think scaring people is kind of the, the main concern anymore. But the part I'm trying to understand is, you know, is this, is this something where we need to get journalists upskilled to um, understand that, that link a little bit more? Or is that that we need to have the scientists explain it to the journalists a little bit better? Or how do we bridge that gap between some of these important ideas that maybe don't get um, told or, or shared with some of these news stories? Short-term incentives. Newsrooms, largely, not all newsrooms, but, but a lot of newsrooms operate on commercial models and they are facing diminishing commercial returns. It's a really tough time globally to be in the news business at the moment. If you were to say every single day, what is the most important story in the world today? And I mean, like this is the, 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 the biggest challenge that our species has ever faced. I think it's, it's safe to say. And so would you say that the news coverage for climate change is proportionate to the risk? No. Absolutely not. Why is that? Because everything about the way, you know, everything about what audiences tell newsrooms, everything about the metrics on what stories are clicked on and all that sort of stuff, suggests that people don't want to read about climate change. Now, that's not everyone, of course. I'm, I'm speaking in generalisms. But um, for whatever reason, people, the public, doesn't want to engage in in climate change stories and, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation right and this is always the tension in a newsroom you're going is it our job to reflect what our audience wants to hear or what our audience wants to read about or is it our job to kind of dictate what they should be reading about there's 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 an inherent tension there that all journalists i think have to deal with there are some things we could definitely do better um and you know i, I totally i totally think it's a perfectly reasonable point um, you know, at the end of a story about about fires, you know, catastrophic wildfires, or about a, a you know a massive a record hurricane or whatever, to have a, a caveat line at the end of the story that says these events will become more frequent as a result of climate change. Because of course, whenever there is a, a you know a, a once in five hundred year event that turns out to be a you know once in three year event. Um, inevitably, there are people who say, well, you can't directly attribute this to climate change. That you, you kind of get into that murky, um, that murky space. I also think that, um, you know, that there are kind of, when it comes to the actual science of climate change and people who are, you know, scientists who are, who are measuring the ways in which our planet is changing and forecasting the ways in which it might change in the future, that can be a very hard thing to to illustrate to people and again like short-term incentives in this day and age people want like snippets of information as opposed to really long considered in-depth reporting and that's a challenge for for us as journos like people have such short attention spans but human beings are never bored these days but um and so, and so you're constantly kind of fighting that as well do you think it feels like there is an appetite for the longer form kind of healthy disagreement and healthy debate. And we are seeing that in, in podcasts and sort of longer form media, but, but also at the same at this or sort of at the other end, you know, we are seeing this really short snap um, bite sized um, content as well. Yeah. Do, 
do you think that the the mainstream media and the content for the most part is is driven constantly by that short snappy cycle and it's only maybe 10 percent of the population that are after that long form sort of deeper experience um i don't know if i could put exact numbers on it but i definitely think compared to you know 30 or 50 years ago the appetite for more considered stuff has diminished it's just that's not to say there isn't an appetite and there aren't people who value those things but when you're operating in a commercial environment as most newsrooms are that you know they have to turn a profit in order to pay their reporters and all that sort of thing um i can tell you now kim kardashian uploading a video of something to do with her butt is going to get 30 more times more yeah. clicks than you know than than some measurement from the ross ice shelf and i mean that, again human beings flawed right <laughs> Super flawed. We're completely biased yeah 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 i mean i i personally i have this I, I have this like this this very optimistic and very rosy um i wouldn't say it's a prediction but it's a hope right and and that is that if you think about food and and how food like global food production has kind of changed over the last four decades five decades think about the fast food revolution so that was driven out of the heart of um of our pop culture centers in in you know in the, in the west so driven out of the two coasts of the u.s those are the places where all the burger joints came up and where you know for the, and and, and and that became the cool thing to do was to, you know, like it was really desirable to eat at McDonald's or, you know, to eat crap and to eat stuff that was, you know, full of preservatives and a very new, a very low nutritional value. And it's interesting to see that the, the places that are now driving the farm to table revolution, the whole food, like vegan, all that stuff, sustainable um, food production are also those coasts like those same areas that drove the fast food revolution are now the ones not rejecting the fast food revolution, but kind of rejecting the anti fast food revolution. And part of me hopes that the same thing will happen. Um, and that the places that drove the, the kind of social media digital age, i.e. the coasts of the U S are also going to be the places that go, this has gone too far. We have incentivized, you know, the, the cocaine hit, sugar rush, tidbit, bite-sized information to a point that it is really damaging for our societies. And that people who, you know, once right behind all of that kind of, you know, whatever, the Facebook videos and all that sort of stuff, will be the same people who put a renewed emphasis on really quality journalism and information. And, 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 and I hope that we can all go, you know what, we tried the sugar rush thing. It actually wasn't very satisfying in terms of information. We tried the cocaine hit for, for information and actually we did that for 10 or 15 years. We did it for 20 years, but we realized that actually it was really damaging for our societies. And we want to ensure that as well as that's still being available and still being, you know, tempting to a lot of people, we actually promote and and nurture good sources of information as much as possible as well that's my that's my the optimist in me speaking I, I would love to see how that could play out from a media landscape it was interesting i talked to andrew chen the other day and he talked about how you could 
do that with say neutral social media where people might pay, uh, you know, $6 a month and they get, a, a, you know, a social media platform that hasn't got the algorithms that kind of promote that same sort of behavior. It's purely a sort of healthy social media channel without the ads and all the other crap that people don't like associated with the channels that you get today. Um, but from a media perspective, at a consumer level, just subscribing to things is um, is really important. Like, put your money where your mouth is. If you value good information, then then buy a subscription to something. Like, I personally, you know, like I I um, my favourite sort of journalism is long form written journalism in the US, and you know, like the New Yorker, for example. I just think consistently sets the bar, sets the standard for for impeccable journalism. So I buy a subscription, <laughs> and and it sounds crazy, but if I go on to um, the Herald or Staff or, or anything else, TVNZ, whatever, and I see something that I know is clickbait, I see Ellen's staff member moans about, you know, gives crazy details about Ellen's pre-show routine or something, I will, like, will myself not to click on that in the moment. Go, do not, even though I want to know what it says, do not click on it because it just feeds into a greater algorithm that says this is what people want to see as opposed to this is what people need to see. Like, like Paleo Pete and his, you know, BS. It's one of the classic examples of all, all of these things. And it's like, yeah. we're trying to talk about, you know, a global pandemic and improving people's well-being and health. And then this, these channels are then actively promoting sort of the opposite just to drive revenue and clicks. There is this weird moral kind of question i mean you you spent a bit of time in america that was a few years ago but from a sort of from a algorithm or, or sort of a social media perspective do you do you think that one day we could get to a point where the channels themselves would have some sort of way to validate or um I know they're starting to look at that now, but like how, how, you know, how can we validate content before it just gets sprayed out a bit, a bit like broadcasting standards, but for some of these, you know, online platforms. Well, at the moment, um, I think, I think different channels are doing better jobs, but different platforms, social media platforms are doing, um, you know, some of them are doing a pretty reasonable job. I think some of them are making no effort whatsoever. Um, so for example, like I, I think Twitter is doing a reasonable job of trying to temper disinformation or at least flag things that it thinks are problematic for a variety of reasons. I mean, on Facebook, it's, it's a different story. Um, and I think that Facebook is um, like morally extremely compromised in that it is so um, profit-driven <laughs> that it actually doesn't see any financial incentive in, in fact-checking anything. Like, it, it prefers to take this kind of ultimate libertarian line in which it just says, oh, well, we're the platform, we're the platform. We're not the, we're not the publisher. Uh, we're, the, you know, we're, we're the publisher or we're the platform, but we're not the producer of the content, so we don't take responsibility for it. I mean, but like, I, for a while, kept on coming across and, and having my attention drawn to these ads on Facebook that was a, it was a scam saying that, saying that I had endorsed some way of making Bitcoin or something. And it was, it was, it was a patently absurd, right? And, and, um, but you, you could know, get really rich I, if I you clicked a link. I would look at it and go, this is absolutely ridiculous, but it had been, it had been produced to quite a, 
a reasonable, it had been produced to a standard that would have been enough to fool my dad if he'd seen it, right? Like he, he would have thought that it was strange that I was promoting Bitcoin, but he would have, he would have looked at that and thought it looked legitimate. Mm. And I flagged that, I don't know, I don't know, five, 10 times to Facebook. And I had heaps of people flag it on my behalf and it would still pop up. And I'm like, come on. If you are able to build digital tools that will find a copyrighted piece of material that's published within three or four minutes of it going online, then surely you have the digital tools that are able to cut, crack down on this. But of course, Facebook sees no financial incentive in doing that. Um, so as to where we go with it, I mean, I actually feel, um, again, the optimist in me hopes that, say, Facebook, um, like young people are not using it as much. Um, and young people in the US in particular have gone off Facebook because the moment your mum's on it, it's not so cool. Now they're on TikTok and, and they're being watched all yeah, the time. <laughs> and I mean, this is the problem, right? There's always going to be, there's always going to be a new platform and the great democratization of information and that everyone with, a digit, with an internet connection gets a platform also means inevitably you have the great democratization of disinformation. And uh, I'm not sure that I have any, any hard and fast solutions to any of that, except to say we should, we should try and remove as many financial incentives for those companies as possible. Um, like, should the, you know, should the New Zealand government, for example, that criticizes Facebook for spreading disinformation, be spending millions of dollars a year in Facebook advertising? I think that's a very good debate. Um, and yeah, I'm, I mean, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a big movement to break up some of these companies. I don't, I don't know personally if that's possible. And I think, like you say, as soon as one's, you know, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? But, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. It's a, a, a really curious little, not little, a, a curious quirk of this information age where you would think we all have this access to this amazing, you know, to the web of information, and yet so many people are kind of absurdly informed to that. Like it's almost had the opposite effect <laughs> in, some, in some quarters. And the disinformation thing, I think a lot of Kiwis took it for granted. And recently that's really exposed how many conspiracy theorists and all sorts of other kind of crazy ideas popping up and, and quite rational people can get lured into to a lot of these ideas. Um, and some of them are very, very well presented and, and very kind of well constructed. Yeah. What, do, what do you think is some of the, but we've seen that overseas a lot. And now in the last few months, it's become quite apparent in New Zealand. Do you, do you think that there's a, a way we can get better? Do you think that that's the media's responsibility? Or again, do you think, how, how do we try and, get on top of that. And we're seeing it from all sorts of different spaces too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a chicken and egg thing again, right? Like, so the media plays a role, but I also think as consumers, we, we play a role as well. It was interesting to me this week, we had this, there was this rumor going around on Facebook saying, oh, the reason that the person, someone mm. had COVID was yeah, yeah. because someone broke into the COVID facility to see their partner or whatever. And like I had, I, I won't tell you who I had texting me, but I had like, very powerful, very powerful, successful people, you know, from like very high up positions, texting me screenshots being like, have you seen this? Mm. This is crazy. 
this is, and I'm like, why do you think this is true? What, what part of this makes you think it's true? And, and they said, well, I saw it on Facebook. And you just go, well, okay. <laughs> do you, if your friend said jump off a driver bus off a cliff, would you do it? You know, <laughs> it's kind of it's like that, that situation. But it's funny how information, when it's, um, there's a really, information takes on an additional power when it's shared by people whom you trust. And so, especially by friends and, and loved ones. Mm. Like I had, I, I, when I was living in the US, I remember a friend of mine said to me, it was a couple of several elections ago, John Key and the national government got in and, and, and what was a landslide really? I think it was against David Cunliffe. And, um, and my friend, I said, oh, we've got to go and vote to, to a Kiwi friend there. And we were making our way to the, to the um, consular office to go and cast our ballots. And he said to me, and we hadn't really talked about the you know, New Zealand politics at all. And he said to me, oh, it looks like, um, looks like Labour's gonna waltz in, eh? And I said, what? And he said, yeah, it looks like Labour's gonna waltz in with this. I said, I don't know, man, the polls, <laughs> the polls say the opposite of that. <laughs> Why do you think that Labour's gonna waltz in? And it just turns out that the noise on his, like he was- He, he, he was, was in that echo chamber that just- and, You know, maybe, yeah, maybe seen a left. And just the noise on his Facebook page was enough to kind of set in his own mind what was happening. It was a really, I just thought it was a really interesting illustration at the time. And of course, Labour ended up getting trounced in that election. Um, I, I just thought it was really interesting how, because that, you know, the, those little bits of information, whether it was just an encouraging message from one of his friends on Facebook saying, yeah, go Labour, I'm voting Labour or whatever. Enough of that had kind of just parked up somewhere there in his subconscious that he just assumed that to be the truth when it was like quite far from the truth. Um, so, so who takes responsibility for that? Well, I mean, when I say chicken and egg, I do think consumers play a role. And I think you have to be skeptical about everything you see in social media. Remember that none of it's real life. And um, yeah, be, be increasingly skeptical about almost anything you see on there. I also think that, that in order to maintain and rebuild any trust that has been eroded, media needs to do a, like hold itself to the highest standards when it comes to the content that it produces. So stuff, A, has to be absolutely factual, but I think this is where a longer term incentive for media is to actually consistently report on things such as climate change, knowing that by consistently reporting on it, you actually over a longer period of time, maybe rebuild the sense of trust that is otherwise, that is otherwise lacking. And so Stuff is our biggest website in New Zealand at the moment, our biggest news website. It's interesting to me just in the last couple of months to notice the change in the editorial decisions that are being made there. I mean, not only have they got a, a you know a climate team now, and Eloise Gibson, I think it is, is the climate editor, but also clearly under their, you know, their, 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 their editor or owner, they are looking to put less kind of clickbait stuff on that, on that website. In the same way that the Herald is looking to put, a, put up premium content and ask people to pay for that, they're, they're kind of looking to reestablish themselves as authoritative voices, which is, you know, given perhaps trust has been undermined in the public a little bit, I think it's a really, I think it's a really positive sign. Yeah, one of, one of the cool things that Stuff is doing now is they have, every day they've got the daily parts per million, carbon dioxide, the carbon 
carbon tracker. So you can go in and you can see exactly what the daily um, numbers are. And I always thought, you know, a few other um, media companies around the world are, are doing that as well. And I always thought it would be fantastic. You know, the end of the six o'clock news during the weather bulletin, they also had, you know, one thing and it shows the graph and the climate, you know, sort of a climate update and you show how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. And, you know, just little things like that, that don't take up too much time, but could add a lot of value just to get that, just like the daily briefings we're getting with COVID. I'm going to lost that. That's a really good idea. I'll write it down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he won't listen to me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there are little things I feel like you can do like that that don't um, sort of disrupt the, the routine or things that are currently going on, but but I think would add a lot of value just to get some of those ideas or get people exposed to things that they may not necessarily be thinking about all the time. Mm, mm. And especially when you're, when you're like keeping in mind that the vast majority of people accessing like the evening news or, or stuff or the hill, you know, the vast majority of people aren't experts and actually have a limited attention span and interest when it comes to the minutiae of the science putting things again, and, and we talked about communication, but putting things in a really digestible format is, is really useful. Like I was, um, I was in India and Pakistan over summer and you know, every day, because the air pollution was so bad, every day they published the air pollution tracker. And it just became part of my, like it was, it was just like you say, just like tracking the weather every day, you know, after being there for three days, I already knew what was high and what was medium for air pollution and whether or not I would need to be wearing a mask and all that sort of thing. And it's amazing how quickly little measures like that or measures like the COVID alert system, one, two, three, four, can become part of the common lexicon very quickly. The, the other thing, and it almost, you have to go right back into school or education is, you know, how can we build some of these systems or build some of the these thoughts or ideas into our education system so from school people understand what some of these things are and then it's not kind of a, a new thing that people are learning when they get older so you know i think what, an example is you know primary school teachers are taught how to teach science they're not taught science so when you're studying to become a teacher, you'll learn how to teach it. And I don't know what it's like for, for journalism school, but you're probably taught to tell a story rather than try and, and, and it's difficult because there's so many different fields and different things and, and you can't be an expert at everything. But I just wonder that there must be a better way that we no, you're can- so, You're so onto something there. I, like, I, I think, sorry to interrupt you. I think, um, like I, I to, the way that most people get into journalism now, is through like a journalism school and i would i don't have any numbers to back this up but i would guess my best guess would be that the vast majority of people who do that don't have any other qualification so which is not to say that there's it's more just they've gone to university they've studied they've studied communications or they've studied journalism they've done a ba or something like that maybe but, but they've basically studied journalism and then they've gone straight into a straight into a newsroom like I think, I think journalism would be really well served to get to start seeking people from a much broader range of backgrounds, and 
and then teaching them the skills that are relevant to journalism today, as opposed to coming in with the journalism skills already. I think we'd do better to have some of that, but also to have people who didn't know anything about how to write a story, didn't know anything about how to do an interview or how to, how to you know, nurture contacts or anything like that, bring them in, teach them those skills and let them teach some of their relevant skills to, to reporters. Because the thing about newsrooms is that, that generally speaking, they are places where there's a, a, a great deal of collaboration between, you know, different reporters and things. And, um, you know, like I, I just, and I say this as someone who, who did the traditional, like went to journalism school, got a job in journalism, have been working in it ever since. But to me, the, the you know, I think we suffer from a, a lack of people who properly understand economics, um, people who have those, those like core skills in mathematics, science, and, I do think that we'd, we'd be really well served if we had people from a broader range of backgrounds. And actually, it ex extends beyond subject knowledge. It extends to, like, I, I personally think we should be encouraging people into journalism or finding ways to bring people into journalism from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different ethnic backgrounds, all sorts of things. Because I think the broader our collective um, knowledge, the better we will serve our audiences and I think journalism has a lot a long way to go in that space I also think from like a communicators perspective that um, the science community is improving but 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 has a still has a way to go in terms of um, communicate in terms of the ways with which it engages with journalists and over the last few years and I think like the science media scene has been fantastic in, in getting um, getting journos and, and experts to communicate with one another. But, you know, if I, like, I, 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 again, don't want to name names without dropping them, but I know, you know, a couple of professors who are prominent in the media, and I've spoken to them off camera before about, you know, like, why can't we, uh, do you have other colleagues who are good? I mean, it's fantastic speaking to you, but we want to speak to other people as well. And they'll say there's still, in, in some science circles, especially in maybe the more old school circles, like, being in the mainstream media is seen as devaluing your expertise. It's like, it's like, it's a really, you know, like, oh, that's so mainstream. That's so like common. It's so basic. You're like, you're, you're, you're bringing your 25 years of expertise in this incredibly specific field and you're trying to dumb it down for an audience in two minutes. Well, actually that's a really important role for scientists. And I think that um, sometimes like maybe the science community Certainly in the past, but I've heard this from, from scientists themselves who say that perhaps there, there's like still an element of snootiness when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to being in the mainstream media that needs to be that needs to be changed. It's like it's like the police, right? The police used to have this thing where if you interviewed them, then they had to like shout the office ears. And so the police never wanted to be interviewed. And it wasn't that they weren't prepared to say like this was happening, it's just that they didn't want to shout ears. And sometimes I think the science community is kind of similar and that <laughs> People are think, desperate not to be on camera and stuff. I think, and I think scientists often, the, the nature of science is you don't want to say something in case it's not 100% kind of correct. Mm. And obviously science isn't absolute, so that's, you're never going to have all of the answers. But generally scientists are quite careful, and especially talking about um, issues that kind of overlap certain fields or, or start to get into a sort of um, public space beyond their field of expertise it starts to become quite difficult and also you know they're not they're not trained 
to communicate or speak in that space. So what are, what are some of the, the key things, I guess, or what, what would be some of the, the things that you could suggest to help scientists or get scientists to engage um, with the public or with the media more generally? Number one, people in New Zealand respect the expertise still. Like, we're, like New Zealand has a really high level of trust in, in experts and, and respect for, for expertise that I don't think is necessarily as prevalent in other places. Um, without wanting to say, dumb down your expertise, um, it, it's really interesting. It's just really helpful when scientists are able to explain complex ideas in a relatively digestible fashion. And that's not something that comes necessarily easily if you've dedicated a vast amount of time to, <laughs> to being an expert in a really specific field. But there are, there are great examples of it everywhere. Um, and, you know, I mean, I mean the, the, you know, COVID-19 has been, has been fantastic in, in that we have, you know, we have seen the likes of, you know, Dr. Skegg and Dr. Susie Wiles and, and Dr. Michael Baker and Dr. Aisha Beryl, all of these characters um, fronting medium far more than they would have regularly. And I think doing a really good job of explaining, you know, the complexities around epidemiology in a way that I can understand and, you know, my siblings can understand and my parents can understand and, you know, and, and children can understand in some cases. Um, for the most part, though, it's probably just, it's probably just practice. Like, it, it, you're never going to get it right 100% of the time. But I think that um, the community more, more broadly, more generally, could, um, could make sure that it, 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 you know, like it promotes the idea of, of being involved with the media. It promotes the idea of, of communicating to mass audiences as opposed to, you know, as opposed to that being a little bit looked down on or a little bit, a little bit you know, a little bit common or whatever. Um, which and, and and you probably have a better insight as to whether or not that's that's the reality inside scientific circles. But that I mean that's what I have been told in the past. Certainly that that there is a kind of a bit of a it can be a bit of an elitist attitude sometimes. And I think that the whole science community, not just individual scientists who are fronting media, but the whole science community probably bears some responsibility in supporting their colleagues when you are in that you know when you are thrown into the limelight for whatever reason. I think, and I think one of the other big issues is scientists are incentivized to publish research. That's what they're paid to do. And that's the current kind of job expectation for them. Yeah. And so science communication is this extra thing that doesn't, this, the universities and, and CRIs and things are trying to, to build in that communication um, output into some of these roles but it's still not you know it, it's more time and it's it's other energy and effort that can be taken away from some of those other things and so I think that's the other part that creates some of that limitation that I think we have to get better at um, encouraging and, and promoting that integration between scientists policymakers, journalists and others mm, mm. yeah I think you're right I mean I I don't don't know all the ins and outs of how funding works, but again, it's short-term incentives, though. And um, and I, I, you know, I just I just think that um, like yeah, I I, th I think you're right. I think we all kind of bear a responsibility for um, 
you know, for, for, for promoting expertise and for, and for questioning expertise and all of those sorts of things. But, I, you know, I think, we, I think we all bear a responsibility kind of across the board. Jack, it's been fantastic talking to you and I really appreciate uh, your insight and, and you know, hopefully we can kind of bring about some of these challenges and, and cross some of those barriers between different um, fields of expertise and, and help bring some of these important conversations to a, to a large audience. I really appreciate you talking today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And can I just say finally, like, you know, the next few months and the next year are going to be, I think, like a really critical really critical point in science communication and science journalism in that I was speaking to James Shaw a few weeks ago and said, do you think COVID's good or bad for the climate? And he lamented that while lots of people are being saying, great, oh, there are cars off the roads and airplanes out of the skies and, and our carbon output's way down during lockdowns, blah, blah, blah. He said that his great concern was post-COVID, the whole of the world's focus is going to be on economic recovery. Again, those short-term incentives are going to be overwhelming for people. And I think that um, as communicators and as scientists and, and journalists and everything, over the next 18 months or so, once we break the back of COVID, the dip, the, the inevitable economic dip is, of course, important and we need to you know, reduce suffering as much as possible and all that sort of thing. But I think we bear a particular responsibility in that period to remind people how valuable science communication has been in overcoming this crisis, and then resetting and looking forward to the to the crisis of you know of climate change, and that um, I just think it's going to be a really critical um, little period. And so, the more energised we all are, the better. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of these crazy things. You know, the next eighteen months, effectively, what money gets spent is going to set us for the next ten years. So hopefully all of these shovel-ready jobs and infrastructure projects and things are, you know, sustainable and renewable projects, not kind of just getting people back to work and creating a whole heap of emissions and locking us into sort of 10 more years of, of sort of high-carbon um, industries and, and infrastructure. So, yeah, it's, it is really important, and, and um, these are really important conversations. So, yeah, again, thank you so much, Jack. It's been, been great talking today. Nana mihi nui. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go well.